Hi, podcast listeners. This is Todd Finley, the founder of HBCU Grad. I had the privilege of talking to one of the more dynamic brothers in the HBCU world. Most times, I hope you enjoy an episode. This time, I promise you'll enjoy this episode. His story is one of tragedy and triumph. His humility and intellectual capability is refreshing. He drops so many gems. He's so forthcoming and truthful. You're definitely going to enjoy this one. Hi, guys. Welcome to episode 15 of the HBCU Audio Experience. And I have a special guest guest with me today. His name is Dr. Rolandis Rice. He's the second African-American to earn a Ph.D. from Auburn in the discipline of history since the school was founded in 1856. He served as the dean of the School of Graduate Studies at Lincoln University. At 33, he became the dean of humanities and fine arts at Talladega College, one of the youngest academic deans of an accredited four-year institution in the U.S., He's led the reorganization of the history, English, music, mass media, and fine arts curricula. He was instrumental in securing a $1.25 million implementation cluster grant from the United Negro College Fund Career Pathways Initiative to fund projects to increase Talladega College students' chances of finding meaningful employment upon graduation. He has been a chief diversity officer, assistant provost for academic affairs, assistant vice president for student affairs and enrollment management, and dean of the School of Graduate Studies. He's earned a master's of arts degree in history from Alabama State and doctor of philosophy in the same discipline from Auburn. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rice. Hey, thank you so much for the cordial welcome, man. Just the way you summed up um, my work history in such a short period of time, it makes me feel like I've been around a lot longer than I have been. Um, yeah. Certainly an honor to serve, um, you know, students and faculty and staff at HBCU. So I'm truly uh, honored to do so. And in reading what you've accomplished so far, it seems like you've been around a, a lot longer. What has been your motivation for all this success in such a short period of time? Well, I tell you, I look forward to Mondays and I hate Fridays mm. because this is not work for me. Uh, every day I have an opportunity to reach, teach, touch and transform. So in essence, this is not work for me. It's just a chance for me to get better every day and improve my students every day. That's what it's really all about. So if we go back a little bit, tell me about your upbringing. So I was born and reared in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am what they call a Grady baby. Um, Hospital named after Henry Grady, a New South booster right after Reconstruction. And Atlanta provided me with a unique perspective on life. Um, So again, born and reared there. I was raised by my mother, my grandmother, and my grandfather. My father was, for whatever reason, um, not really involved. And so my parents and my grandparents, they really invested a lot into me 
uh, even though we didn't have a lot of money, uh, they kept me on the right path. They kept me in church. Um, they were always ensuring that whenever I did get a chance to help people that I, I would do that. So again, Atlanta, Georgia, I attended a school called Wadsworth Elementary and I was a mischievous student and I was placed in a behavior disorders class because I was always, you know, I couldn't sit down. I was always getting in trouble and the teacher persuaded my mother um, to put me on Ritalin. So they put me on Ritalin and it, and I don't know if you know anybody who has taken that medication, but it, it transforms you into a zombie and my behavior got a lot better, but my grades were terrible. And so I stayed in that program throughout my years in elementary school. So by the time I left elementary school, I went to a junior high school. I was expelled there, had to go to an alternative school. From there, I went to a high school, Columbia High in Decatur, Georgia. And in my eighth grade, in my ninth grade year, rather, um, was when my perilous uh, trajectory kind of spun out of control. And it's crazy. I failed, I believe, 11 classes during my first year in high school. So I was wearing the same clothes, same shoes. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. And um, and as a result, I just stopped going to school. I, I, I had given up. So it gets very interesting. After I dropped out, I started to wash dishes, uh, change tires. I drove forklifts. I worked in warehouses. And I realized that I could do better. And right. the circumstances that changed it all one week, my girlfriend at the time dumped me. My mother kicked me out of the house and my car got repossessed. I was at one wow. historian calls the nadir, the lowest point. From there, I said, I can't get any lower. So I started climbing and climbing. And, uh, and here we are today. Now, when you said you were teased, um, one, what effect did that have on you? And how has bullying or the response to bullying changed since you were being bullied? So what I can recall, it was diminishing and demeaning. And I was unable to perform in school because I was always worried about people laughing and talking about, you know, what I looked like, what my shoes looked like, what my clothes looked like. And any child under those circumstances, it makes it very difficult for them to perform well because mentally your mind is in another place. And I wasn't right. physically bullied, but that mental, uh, those mental challenges certainly impacted me adversely. Uh, and, but now from what I can discern, you know, things were different. I know every generation says the same thing. Oh, things are just different. Now you guys are much worse than, than a generation before. And I don't know if I can say that. I think it just adapted to a, to a different set of circumstances. Um, but now, man, when I see bullying, I mean, kids are getting killed. Uh, right. And to know that children my daughter's age, who's nine years old, are resulting to 
killing themselves because of what they're dealing with in school, man, we have to do better about that. And I don't know what the outside of number one, they're really beginning at home and mothers and fathers preparing students to, uh, to be nice and caring to other individuals because uh, Dr. King said that what impacts one indirectly impacts us directly. And we have to all understand that we are tied together in one single garment of destiny. That's what Dr. King said. And oftentimes we don't realize that whether it's race, gender, age, class, these types of barriers prevent us from really understanding that we are really one people. Right. And I think that's what it, it all results to results back to. Really. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Now I saw that you say something that rejection prepares you for redirection. Sure. Explain that a little bit more. That's extremely profound. Wow. So that week when my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, believe it or not, uh, she wanted to separate herself from me because I had been dishonest, right? I was telling mm-hmm. everybody that I was about to graduate from high school, that I graduated and I was about to go to, to a community college. And one day it all hit the fan. She found out that I was not in school, that I had indeed dropped out. Dropped out and nobody knew about it. And one day mm. everything hit the fan and she dumped me. And, and I think wow. probably so because I had not been honest about it because I was embarrassed. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I said, even if I don't win this girl back, at least she can see that I tried. That's why that's the only reason why I even went to earn a GED, just so she can see that I tried to do something. So right. that moment of, re- of rejection, it really redirected my entire path because I had something to prove, not to myself, it's crazy, but to her. And it goes back to the mentality of most men. If you can recall, and I know I can recall, when I was in elementary school, right, I could, Mm -hmm. if I'm outside on the basketball court with with my friends, my homeboys, you know, we're playing basketball, I'm just trying to shoot a layup, shoot a, a, a easy two pointer. But when the young ladies came around, everybody tried to show out. We would try to You get another you used to get another <laughs> sorry for interrupting you, but you get another burst of energy that you don't know where it comes from. Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. So um and I think that whole concept it drove me because I wanted her to see, even though you may not take me back, um, I tried. And, right. and it was that vain attempt at winning my girlfriend back which put me on this trajectory that was it right and it, it wasn't right. some profound sense of my calling for humanity or me feeling as if i had my own damascus moment no it was just me trying to get my girlfriend back right there's a book called the millionaire next door and it talks about just all the different habits and the facts of, about millionaires uh-huh. And it says that ninety percent of millionaires are married. I can believe. So the <laughs> so the question after that is, are they married because they're millionaires, or because they're married they became they became millionaires? That's 
What do you think about that? I think that's a very good question. And I think it's good because I, I really understand the whole concept of what marriage is or what it should be. I think historically, marriages were not necessarily built on love. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, they were built on an economic arrangement for two people to to make it through life together as partners. I mean, love was a was a was a construct created much later. Okay. Um, but I also understand that oftentimes we see a man or a woman on the journey, but rarely see the impact of the journey on that person who is on this, this path to greatness. So what I mean by that, one person it is very difficult for them to reach greatness on their own. And I, and I say great in italics because that's subjective. Um, some people mm-hmm. are successful. Some are significant. I would much rather aim to be significant. Um, wow. That's deep. One cannot make it through this life alone. And no matter what we know, John Locke said that we're all born with a tabula racer, which means it's a blank slate. Somebody had to teach you something. And mm-hmm. oftentimes our spouses, um, they are a refining source because iron sharpens iron. That is so true. And I'm not a millionaire, maybe not even a thousand there, <laughs> but I do know that for one to reach their full flowering, um, that spouse next to them um, has a way of ensuring that they reach that point. And I'll tell you, if something as simple as if you're married, I mean, right, I don't have to really dive into the day-to-day operations with my children. I work a lot. Mm-hmm. My wife, who I think is much smarter than me and could have earned a PhD if she so chose to do so. So besides her allowing me to focus about the the nature of what the HBCUs entail and, and, and helping and reaching and teaching and touching, she handles the stuff at the house. But she also she proofs read things. I, I right. strategize with her. I get her opinion on a lot of different things. So, and that's just in my situation. So I can only understand what it's like when people who have reached the apex of their professions and have, you know, again, reached millionaire status. Now, again, that's not a historical uh, piece of insight, just something I think that, you know, I can glean from the day-to-day operations of seeing married couples. Do you think being married has helped you professionally? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, being on the younger side, I mean, I'm 37. I don't mind sharing that. Mm-hmm. I am constantly dealing with students, female students, oftentimes. And I'm always mindful of how to navigate this environment because my wife was like, Ro, well, you may want to deal with this student that way. Or make sure you have somebody in the room when you talk about this kind of thing, because it's a treacherous environment sometimes. Definitely. And I can go home and share things with her and get uh, her perspective because attachment is the great fabricator of illusions. Only when you detach yourself from something, can you really see what it is? And mm-hmm. when I get another perspective from someone who's not attached, it allows me to make 
decisions that are more informed and dispassionate because when you are so passionate about something, it often clouds your judgment. And again, my wife is so analytical and so insightful. So we can often, you know, dissect situations and figure out the best way um, to address an issue for the long term. So that has helped me. I mean, I think every day of my professional career, there's not many things that has happened that I can share without violating FERPA that she doesn't know about. Right. Now, that's great, great insight. How do you think it has helped you climb the the ladder of academia from your colleagues looking at you? Would Do you think you would have made it to the same level if you were single? Or do you think marriage really helped and uh, kind of helped pr- propel you to that next level, looking at it from a colleague standpoint? You know what? I think it's marriage and children. All right. Um, I can recall when I was the dean of the graduate school at Lincoln University, my wife was also employed there as an assistant athletics director. So we made it a priority to eat lunch every day because we wanted young students to see what married couples look like. Uh, Remember, it was Nikki Giovanni who said that black love equals black wealth. Mm. All right. That's what Giovanni said. So we were always mindful to be an example to the to the students who could see that marriage is a foundation upon which you can build upon for your own wealth. And I don't mean wealth just financially, but emotional, physical, intellectual. Um, One must have all of that to be, I think, successful. Now, right. For me as a man, I was taught by my grandfather to provide and protect. And Mm -hmm. when I had children, that reached a different dimension because I have three minors who are depending on me, a nine-year-old, a four-year-old, and a Mm nine-month-old. So that is the motivation that has really driven me to the lens that it has. But one thing you may not know, my oldest mother, her daughter, her mother died when she was three months old. And I was in graduate school at Auburn. So I was working at Auburn. I was a full-time PhD student. I was teaching at Tuskegee and I was working 40 hours a week at Alabama State University at the same time. Wow. All of my family was in Atlanta. And everybody said, Roll, send Madison to Atlanta. Everybody would understand you are just a daddy. You're, you know, your job is to go to school, finish, and provide a life for her. But in that moment, man, I realized that that which is easy is not always what was right. Say it again. And that is what really motivated me. To, to take care of my wife, who I, who I later married, of course, and my children. And it was all steeped in that tragedy. So even then, it may not have been rejection, but it was still a tragedy that influenced my trajectory. Um, so again, but we all have those types of stories. It may not be that, but we all have something that pushes us to be better. And for me, it was number one, initially, my 
girlfriend leaving me, and then my daughter's mother passing unexpectedly at age 23. So those types of things, man, I mean, they drive you. I want to dive a little deeper into this. Okay. How how did you navigate the mother of your daughter passing three months after your daughter was born? Man, I tell you, I've been asked that question of really a trillion times. And to this moment, almost 10 years later, I still am baffled and befuddled by what happened. I know that everybody else had a chance to grieve, right? But I had a three-month-old to raise. I knew that everybody was counting on me to send my daughter to Atlanta, not really be involved. But it was a decision in court because I was trying to make sure everything was legitimate And the judge said, you know that you have done a good job by your child if they can make it here without you. Mm. And that declaration in a Montgomery, Alabama courtroom, it pushed me beyond my limits. And I I realized, though, and again, I'm a man of faith. And I realized at that moment that I did not realize until then that God was all I needed until I realized he was all that I had. Um, And that is what carried me because there were so many times I thought about giving up. And when I would think about giving up, I would hear those cries of a little five month old, six month old. And I knew that she was depending on me. And that is what really encouraged me in my deepest darkest moments because it was so unexpected and when I knew what I was capable of when I graduated and there are pictures my daughter is walking across the stage with me at Auburn University being hooded and and people thought well he just trying to put on the scene but they didn't know that she had been attending classes with me because I couldn't afford a babysitter sometimes Wow. Yeah. People didn't know that she was in my classes at Tuskegee when I was teaching world history because I didn't have anywhere for her to go sometimes. Uh, I had some help, a lot of help from a good nanny, but she could not do everything because she had her own life. Uh, Right. So there's a lesson in that. I think for other young fathers, whether they are single fathers or fathers who are not as involved as they should be, man, paying child support is the easy part. That's easy. It is the day-to-day involvement that most fathers, or or some fathers rather, do not fully engage in. And um, so, but yeah, that's that's what kept me going, man. I mean, it was it was it was you know, I could not fail, and I had done some things in my life that I was not proud of. I was convinced this was the one thing that I would be proud of. You can call me Dr. Rice one day, call me a professor, call me a dean, but I, I I really prefer the old title at home, just call me daddy. That's the title that's most touching for me. I love it. I love it. Now, as as your daughter has got older, how have you managed um, to share the experience of what happened to you, or have you got to that yet? Or if you don't want to share, I, I totally understand. No. 
But I, I think that, I think this is something that can really help people because this is you know something that happens. Um, but how have you navigated that as she's as she's got older and become more aware? Man, again, <laughs> I don't know if you have a psychology background or sociology, but you are in my head too because these are things that I've had to grapple with. So I have a uh, an Android, and Android automatically saves your Google Photos, right? So I have a folder of pictures and videos of her mother. Mm-hmm. And once a week, she would go through these pictures and ask, ask me tons of questions. And just yesterday, I took her by the cemetery in Talladega, Alabama. And, um, and we had a little moment. We had a little conversation. And she's so attuned and informed about her mother, though she has no memories of her. Wow. And she asked me what, and her mother, her name, and you don't mind me sharing, her name was Julia Player. And she was an AKA. I met her at Alabama State, a member of the Beta Pi chapter, and just a beautiful woman. Uh, Hazel eyes, I mean, just pretty. All all of the qualities that you would think a woman must have to be pretty, she was that. And and my daughter looks just like her. Wow. Wow. So when she's at my office, she said, well, daddy, can you pull up mommy's grades? I said, I, I can't pull up her grades to share with you. But even then, because we met at Alabama State, so I can see transcripts from, you know, many years before. And I said, well, I can't pull up her grades to share with you. But just the fact that she wants to know how her mother performed in school. That's deep. And what that does, if I say, well, baby, your mom was an A student. She says, OK, I think my mom would appreciate if I, too, were an A student. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And to my wife's credit, my wife has been involved, I mean, from a, from a very early time and has raised her as her own child. And so she's able to benefit from that aspect. But there's still always a question mark about her own biological mother. And it could be small things like yesterday we were riding in the car and I, a song by Mint Condition called Pretty Brown Eyes came on on the radio. And that was her mother's son because, I mean, she had, you know, pretty brown eyes. So that, too, would spur conversation. And what I told her was to, well, I always keep your mom's memory alive. And my wife is so supportive of that because she understands the, you know, the necessity of human beings knowing and understanding where they come from. It's, it's a delicate right. conversation to have, um, but one that I welcome because the fool wonders and the wise man or wise woman asks. So I, I appreciate the wisdom in my daughter to ask those questions. Right. Right. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That's, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you, that you shared that. I think that can really, you know, put things in perspective for people that have gone through something like this children, sure. you know, as, as well as uh, spouses, you know, as well as people that, have raised children or are raising children that are not their own. Sure. Absolutely. And this could have easily went in another direction because I've, I've heard and seen horror stories, um, but my wife, Dana, she never looked at it that way. And which is a blessing for all of us because a lot of people just would not assume that responsibility. My wife has done such a good job that even my daughter's, my daughter's maternal grandmother calls my wife her daughter. Wow. And that's that's strong for a grieving mother to do. But she recognized and respects my wife for the role that she's had in shaping 
you know, her granddaughter. Because again, that's that's not an easy task. It's not. But it sounds like you know how to pick them. Hey, <laughs> man, I do. I do. I do. If I can't do anything else, I'm not to pick a good woman because I was raised by a good woman. You know? Yeah, and and that that's so key. That, that that's key. Well, that's awesome. So going back a little bit, we're gonna have to rewind. I'm I'm glad we got the chance to touch on that. Sure. With, I know that you've always been a smart person, but you've had you had your issues young. Sure that you had to kind of get outside of the original track. Sure. So when you went back to get your GED, what was that like? Man, I remember it like it was yesterday. I never had any intention of finishing the GED. I just wanted people to see that I tried. So I can right. remember borrowing some money from my mother, maybe $20 or so. And she gave, so I went and bought a martyr card. I don't know if you're familiar with Atlanta, but that's the, the transportation system in the city. Mm -hmm. So I called the Marta bus, went to the community college and I sat in on the first class and I said, you know what? I think that I can do this. And so I did not attend the rest of the classes. I just sat for the test. So took the test and about a month and a half later, I got the results back saying that I passed and that I had finished the requirements for the GED. And you would think that I had earned a PhD, man. <laughs> I was so excited because I had not accomplished anything academically before that. So right. for me, that was on a roll for adults. I said, man, yeah. I can really do something other than what I've been doing. Mm -hmm. And that moment to this to this day. As I look at the GED on my wall and the PhD that's still on my, you know, on, on my desk to the side, that is still the most touching moment for me because when students walk into my office, that's the first plaque that they see. And it's positioned that way on purpose. Mm -hmm. Because they need to see that I didn't come out the womb as Dr. Rice. And I prefer that they call me Rolanda. So Ro, I don't, you know, I don't really care about the titles. But okay. I like for them to see that this is where I was. But if I can do that with the GED, imagine what you can do. And you've already had a diploma and you are enrolled in college at a time far earlier than I was. And right. that gives students a lot of hope and inspiration. Um, but I, again, I recall when I was studying for that test, man, this is the biggest test of my life. And if I don't do well, this is what can happen. If I do well, you know, the alternative is even better. And just the preparation for that and seeing the students around me and, and, and it was not demarcated by age or race. There were, you know, black students, white students, young students, older students, everybody trying to improve their, their lot. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that was improving. Because oftentimes right. in our life, we're at forks in our proverbial roads. And that was the first fork in my road. And luckily for me, I made the right decision by forgetting the fact that I was embarrassed or I had dropped out of high school. All I could see was a better day if I satisfied this requirement. And again, to this day, that's one of my crowning accomplishments, earning the GED. Right. That's awesome. So so after your GED, 
we have a 1979 Cadillac. Hey, that's right. Tell me about it. So I bought, <laughs> I bought the, uh, the the Cadillac, and I was selling cars for a used car salesman, trying to okay. get through school. And he sold me that car for six hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah. And sometimes I could not make enough money to put gas in the car to get back and forth to school. So my grandmother, who was on who was on a fixed income at the time, and thank God she's still here with us, she would roll cash wow. to help me put gas in my car to get back and forth to school. And imagine how many pennies it takes to fill up a gas guzzler like that. Yeah, right. That's cool. And exactly. Yeah. And so that car had so much meaning to me and for me because my grandfather had the same car who's now deceased. Wow. And all Cadillacs of that era, they all smell the same. They do. They do. <laughs> it took me back to my childhood and my grandfather, who was always imparting wisdom into me. And every day I got in that car, it reminded me that one day somebody would be depending on me as I depended on my grandfather, and right. which was the meaning why we incorporated that into the uh, the mini documentary that is on on the website thedapperdean.com. Uh, and and I'm even now people think I'm financially comfortable. I mean I'm okay, but I prefer to drive that Cadillac every now and then to remind me of the lessons that I learned from my grandfather. Uh, You're right. You know, oftentimes as a people, we we embrace the idea of conspicuous consumption. You know, you need to see what I have to give me value. And so I right. share with my students that a man or woman in debt is a man or woman in bondage. Ooh. And so I, I try to live much below my means. And again, like my wife will tell you, we invest more in experiences and not things because things, I mean, they they depreciate in value. Right. With my students, I remind them that a degree is like prime real estate in Manhattan or Beverly Hills. It always appreciates in value if you refine yourself over over time. And I think that resonates with students sometimes, you know? Yeah, it, it definitely. I can I can definitely see that. <laughs> so so after you got your GD you enrolled in Alabama State. What was the process from GED to Alabama State? So before Alabama State, and what a lot of people don't know, I came to Alabama State for the master's degree. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I earned my undergrad degree at a small school called DeVry University. Okay. And I, I remember meeting with the admissions counselor and I said, well, do you all take people with GEDs? And she said, you know, yes, we do. But you have to take certain placement exams. So I took the exams and then I saw the sticker price. I said, man, I, I can't really afford going to this institution right now because it was a private school. And so she sat down with me, showed me how to find scholarship money, um, which allowed me to finance the, the baccalaureate degree. So. I came to Alabama State in 2006, okay. and I was not sure this was where I wanted to go because I wanted to go to law school. But my younger brother, Rounder, was attending school here, and I said, Rand, you know, what's so beautiful about Alabama State? I said, the buildings are old. The grass is not really, you know, kept up. You always complain about your dorms. 
what is it about Alabama State? And he said, you would never understand the beauty of the HBCU until you are within. And this was my first experience with an HBCU, and it was given, you know, through my younger brother. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, Alabama State, when I arrived, it was a place that was welcoming, it was inviting, and I had professors who did not care about my intellectual shortcomings. Some of them were graduates of Morehouse. And so they believed in what Howard Thurman said, that you put the crown of scholarship high above the head of your students so that one day they will go tall enough to wear it. Hmm. That was profound. Very. And initially they were not going to let me in because I had a degree in business. But a professor named Dorothy Archer, the first African-American PhD in history from Notre Dame, she said, young man, I don't know. I don't know you from the next person, but I hear the fire in your voice. We're going to give you a chance. I wow. think about How many HBCUs have given our students chances? I look at Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King went to Morehouse reading on the eighth grade level. All right. Wow. Martin Luther King earned only one A when he was a student at Morehouse. He was a C student. Wow. Earned a C in public speaking. Listen, wow. If you earn a C in public speaking as Martin Luther King Jr. and Morehouse can turn you into a Nobel laureate, an orator known throughout the ages, then I don't think that it was so much King as it was Morehouse. That is the beauty of our institutions. Woo. Speak on it. So what Morehouse did for King, and in no way am I comparing myself to the immortal Martin Luther King Jr., but Alabama State University did the same thing for me. ASU found me brick and made me marble. And that's the truth. That's the truth. That's the truth. So when people attempt to devalue HBCUs as I – was doing unconsciously before I attended one, um, people really need to sit down, understand, and appreciate what these schools have produced because oftentimes they're making bricks without straws. Mm. And whether that's dealing with federal or state funding, dealing with the politics that have attempted to strangle our institutions, but yet somehow we still find a way to survive. And if you really want to be honest and look at it for what it is, um, R.G. Collingwood, who was a historian, said that the only clue to what man can do is what man has already done. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. So what have we done since 1867 and from Cheney Wilberforce much earlier? This is what we do. Um, and if we need to look at a template of how to survive moving forward. The template is already there. We just have to refine it because oftentimes you can separate from tradition, but never from mission. And our mission is to uplift and empower those who oftentimes don't have other options. But we, again, see them break and make us marble. Wow. Wow. Do you think 
because you studied history that you have a much better roadmap on where we're going? Well, I, I wouldn't say a much better roadmap, but I do know that understanding history, it gives you insight into what has happened and what could possibly happen again. I know as a historian, I have to read things that I really don't want to read. Mm-hmm. Most people read what they want to read. So I get to look at everything from a panoramic perspective and understand that everything has a history. So to think historically is to recognize that all problems, all situations, all institutions exist in context that must be understood before informed decisions can be made. So no entity, corporate, government, or nonprofit cannot afford to have a historian at the table because we're analytical. Um, We understand trends over millennia. So I wouldn't say that you have in a historian someone who can read through a crystal ball, but you do have someone who can make informed decisions based on patterns from the past and avoid issues or challenges because we've already seen that before. And so me being a historian oftentimes assists me because I don't have the many, many years of experience as a lot of my colleagues may have. Okay. But as a historian, I mean, my analytical lens is very different and I can see things through a different perspective. Sometimes that my, my esteemed colleagues may not always be able to see. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so after you uh, went to Alabama State, matriculated through there, got your master's, you went to Auburn to get a PhD. Why Auburn? So, again, uh, divine, the divine intervention. I, enrolled, I was admitted into Michigan State. Mm. And I moved to Michigan January 2009. And I'm from the South, man. So (laughs) the bitter, cold climates, I knew that I wasn't cut out for for Michigan. So I was in Michigan for 30 days, 29 days to be exact. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going back down South. So my professor, my mentor at the time, and still is, his name is Burtis English. Burtis English was the first African-American to earn the Ph.D., in the history department. Wow. And, but he taught me at Alabama state. So ASU is 50, 52 miles from Auburn. So he put me in his truck and drove me up to Auburn and introduced me to the faculty members. And, and he said, and I'm quoting him. He's a bit lazy sometimes, but if you challenge him, he'll be one of the best students that you ever had. <laughs> I know that truth probably resonated with you. Oh, man. And see, oftentimes we write recommendation letters and we don't talk about anything that is not positive. And he brought a degree of credibility because by him being the first, he knew what it would take for me to become the second. And he vouched for me. And so the professors at Auburn, my major advisor's name is Dr. David Carter. 
David Carter, he listened to English and he said, you know what, I think we'll, we'll take our chance on him. And they let me in the program and we did not know that all would happen in my life personally was going to happen. But the fact that my professor lobbied for me and vouched for me, I knew I could not let him down. Right. And that too was an influencing factor for me to navigate the rigors of not just the academic piece, but just what a doctoral program at a PWI can do if you're not careful. And Auburn was good to me. I'm not, I didn't have a bad experience. Um, like a lot of students have at PWIs and doctoral programs. I had a wonderful committee who was fair. They pushed me, but they also wanted to see me be successful. And for that, I am eternally indebted to the university and my committee and the department for, you know, for doing that. But it was the foundation at Alabama State that allowed me to go to Auburn and do what I did. Right. So I, I don't know the exact numbers. I'm pretty sure it's one percent or less of um, people probably in general that get PhDs. But tell everyone, the other 99 percent what getting a PhD is all about and the rigors of it and the challenges and the setbacks and what it, and everything it takes. So for starters, the PhD is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And one has to be conditioned and almost have tunnel vision to complete it. And different institutions have different standards. And, you know, what may go at one school may not go for another. Um, But I knew that Auburn was a, I mean, it was a research one institution. So I knew how intense the program would be. So I went to Auburn not expecting for anybody to give me anything. So I had in my mind, whatever I was able to accomplish, I knew that they would not give me any breaks and they shouldn't give me any breaks because at that level, you're supposed to perform because Mm -hmm. you are working for a credential that qualifies you as an expert in your field. Right. And I know I do not want to go to a physician or a lawyer or a dentist and they are not qualified to treat me. I'm not going to go to a lawyer and my life is on the line and you can pass the bar. No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Or if I need to see a cardiologist and you have not been credentialed by the appropriate accrediting bodies, I'm not so sure that you're credible. So right. my professors at Alabama State said, right, you do not want to be half-baked. You want to be cooked all the way through. Mm-hmm. So I went to school every day that I did in mind. I had to be cooked all the way through. And the program within itself, and like most of the programs, I mean, there are a variety of steps. So there's the coursework. Then there are the qualifying exams. In my situation, I had to take the language exam. And then I had to, of course, you know, pass the written, pass the orals. Then you do your prospectus. For your dissertation, that has to go through a committee. Then you defend your dissertation and a rigorous process. And there are times you are going to feel like giving up. But one has to see the benefits in the end. And for me, it wasn't somebody calling me doctor. I mean, again, I, I don't really care about that. It is the 
it's just another way for me to show students and people that this is what you can do um, if you are are mentally focused on achieving something that people thought was well beyond your reach. And oftentimes we realize that when we have an obsessive single mindedness, we realize that we are uncommonly equipped to do great things if we realize what's in front of us. And mm-hmm. when I said a moment ago that it's a marathon, somebody said many years ago that direction is more important than speed. Yes. In other words, it doesn't matter how slow you go. You just keep going in the right direction. And that's what the PhD program is about. Just keep going in the right direction because there will be setbacks. Your committee may make a decision that you don't like. You may make a grade that you don't like. You may even flunk some things. But in the end, you have to realize that you have to understand what's at stake and navigate the rigors in, the, in, the, in a strategic way. And that's what I was able to do, fortunately, and many others have done before me and I hope will continue to do after me. All right. Now, when you say committed committee, tell me what a committee is. I don't know what one is. Okay. So I know in Auburn, it takes, you know, uh, five signatures for the PhD. So your committee, it is a group of scholars who are experts in your field. So for me, I was in history. So I had somebody from early American history. I had someone from, you know, modern history. I had someone from the archives and libraries piece. And I also had some, an outside reader who was in business and committees do that to ensure that someone outside of the department can give a fair appraisal of what your research can produce. So that committee determines if you get the credential, the degree. And imagine you are in a room with people who are much smarter than you in almost every possible way. (laughs) They have been in the field. They have written books, articles. They are qualified scholars. And for you to make it through that process, it is evidence that you have not once earned their respect but they are awarding you to move forward because you've demonstrated that you too are an expert. And oftentimes as people of color, we often feel like we don't belong, like we're not smart enough, that we're not good enough because we don't have that invisible knapsack. That's that invisible uh, set of assets that people of color oftentimes don't have. And because we have not been privileged in many cases because of the historic inequities in this country. But even still, just like HBCUs, we still find a way to be successful. And I'll tell you a perfect example of that. One day I was cutting the grass at home and I noticed that there was grass growing through the concrete. Mm-hmm. And as I saw the grass growing through the concrete, it reminded me of what people of color have had to deal with in this country. So just as the concrete had been heaped upon the grass, the grass still found a way to peek through anyway. Just mm-hmm. people of color, although through political, social, economic oppression, we've still found a way to peek through everything despite of what has been heaped on top of us. And that's the lesson for me. And I see that we have been in situations to where we were are the perpetual underdog, but we still somehow find a way to win. 
Yes. That's the mentality that I've always tried to have. Well, not always, but at least since I've been an adult and in, and in school. And my committee understood and respected that about me, that I was respectful, but I understood what I was there for. And it was to demonstrate that I was worthy of that credential. Right. Now, coming from where you come from, uh, the background that you that you have, uh, what you had to work through, uh, what you learned, what was it or what is it about you that made it so you could be so successful? Was it things that people put in you? I know I know it is, you know, things that people have put in you. But was it a, a, a thing of talent? Was it a thing of hard work? Was it a thing of uh, seeking out mentors and saying that you are a good mentee? What what was it, do you think, when you when you really look back at everything? You know, I think I'm a cake, man. And you say, well, Rice, what do you mean by being a cake? I think that just as it takes milk, eggs, flour, sugar to make mm-hmm. a cake, um, so too am I. And as people in general, so much has to go into a person to reach a certain level in life. And for me, I've had amazing mentors. I've had an amazing support system at home, particularly with my wife. Um, I can recall when I was in a certain phase of my program, I couldn't work. So my wife Mm -hmm. said, okay, don't work. And she took care of all the bills until I finished my dissertation. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I've had good experiences. For a while, I was a special assistant to Bernice King for about a year Mm. at the King Center. Wow. So I'm sitting at the foot of the daughter of Martin and Coretta Scott King every day, learning about things that I was not taught in the schoolroom. I learned how to navigate different things that were not taught to me in a schoolroom. So the experiences the mentors, the support system at home. Um, But again, it all goes back to providential positioning because I could not have orchestrated that on my own. Right. Um, Right. The almighty positioned me to do what I'm doing. Um, When you said I know how to pick them. Yeah. I mean, I have an eye for pretty, pretty ladies. You know, I've, I've been blessed in that regard when I was a single man anyway. And God aligned my life with people who could help me get to where he wanted me to be. And my mother and grandmother always taught me that my attitude determines my altitude. I did not really, and it's as simple and sublime as that is, I could not fully grasp that until I got older. It was how I treated people. I treat the maintenance worker the same way I treat the president of the university. I give him the same type of deference as I do the president. And people, they recognize that. And, but it's sincere because every day I pinch myself, I still cannot believe that I'm in an office doing what I love to do at the university that made me. So I'm humbled every day by that. 
So I don't have an inflated sense of self-importance to where I think I'm better than anything or anybody. So right. humility, man, humility is is what opened a lot of doors for me. Um, right. I think the most influential person I worked with, her name is Janice Franklin, and I'm not a math person, right? But she's the dean of the library at Alabama State. And oftentimes we see dis- the results of decisions once they're made. But when I worked with her, I was able to see her work the problem. You know, when you were in school as a kid, your teacher would say, you know, show your work. I Mm want to see how you work this division problem. I was Mm -hmm. able to watch her work a university problem and I could see how she could respond to something. How could she correct something? And oftentimes we only get to see the result of what the decision was, not went into what made the decision. I was able to start from a firsthand perspective. And I said, oh, I would never do that if I became a dean, man. And and here I am doing the same exact things because they work. And that's the benefit of marrying experience with talent. I was able to I may have the talent, but it was the people around me with the experience that poured into me, which allowed me to pour into thousands of other people. So that's what I would attribute my rise, which is which has been rapid for sure, and in some cases unbelievable if you did not see the evidence of it, because I was a dean at 33. Oof. When you look at the wow. average age of an academic dean at a four-year accredited institution, is often much older than 33. Yeah. And so my, by me recognizing that I'm going to have some blind spots, I rely on those people who I know more than me. I never, ever want to be the smartest man in the room. Right. I surround right. myself with people who are much, much, much smarter. That's, that's, a, that's a great philosophy to live by and, and, and a, great, a great thing to do. I want to dive deep into, into some tactical things, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. What are some of your daily habits that have really helped you be successful? Is it a matter of planning your days before? Is it a matter of recapping your days? Is it a a matter of writing things down? What daily habits do you have that you can attribute to some of your success? Well, number one, I never make decisions when I'm angry. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, before I make a decision, I like to have as much information as possible because sometimes you got to make decisions with imperfect information. You're not going to have it all all the time. Um, but I'm deliberate, and I, as a historian, I, I mean, I see things from a different perspective. So I read a lot about Henry the Eighth. And Henry VIII said that to be king, one has to be an unnatural man. You have to be hard when others are soft and soft when others are hard. Right. And I live by by that philosophy. Um, But preparation, I, I get up early. I think about my day. I review my notes from the day before. And in HBCUs, man, in any institution where you have a lot of moving parts, it doesn't matter how much you plan, there's going to be factors that you just cannot attribute or account for. Mm -hmm. So I'm very careful to 
leave time in my day for things that I didn't plan to have to grapple with. Um, one of the biggest and smartest decisions I made was my administrative assistant. Uh-huh. Um, someone who was mature, responsible, and could set a tone for the office. Because I see students, right. I mean, all, all day, and some come with, you know, ill intentions. And yeah. having an, a, an assistant who could kind of set the tone in the culture, it eliminates a lot of the negative things that could happen or one could be accused of. So I'm st- very strategic with that. Um, I don't make enemies unnecessarily because you need people to work with you. And politics is in everything. Um, For example, if I want to get a person hired, right, I have to go through the vice president. I have to get approval in the business office. I have to get approval from human resources. And then the president signs off on it. Right. So I need five different people for me to hire one person. So that's just one situation. So nobody can do everything by themselves. You always need help in people who are willing to work with you. And I realized that since, you know, my my first deanship, um, you cannot make unnecessary enemies. And I first came up with that idea when I was reading about a senator from Georgia who I don't agree with politically, but he was able to rise to the highest levels in the United States Senate because he didn't make unnecessary enemies. Uh, People respect you when you work hard. They may not like you as a person. And again, I, I don't fit the traditional academician or administrator. I mean, I wear locks. I am uh, perfectly happy in my own skin. I, I appreciate what my culture has done for me and continues to do. So I walk with an aura of confidence. And it's a thin line between confidence and arrogance. I never cross that line, but I need my students to see there's nothing wrong with being a confident African-American man right. when, in a society that seeks to diminish one for being that. And right. so, again, the, I mean, the technical perspective, I mean, just, you know, preparation, honesty, man, integrity. Um, yeah. There is a lot of situations that could derail my life or my career and making those decisions are just not worth it. Um, but a band director told me years ago, he said, right, so maybe one day you'll be president. And I didn't think about it then. And even now, I don't think about being a president. I think about just serving where I am. But he said, even when you make good decisions, there are consequences. Yeah. And so good leaders have to understand that although the decision is best for you and the institution, there are going to be consequences for making good decisions, right decisions. And I have to understand and live by that because there are decisions I would rather not have to make because they come with consequences. But I know it's the right thing to do. And when I can spend right. night knowing that I've made a decision that is in the best interest of where my where I am, then I then I, I'm okay with that. But it's just having that that barometer or that compass to keep you grounded to where you remember why you were in a particular place at a particular time and for a particular reason. And that's what keeps me going. That's, that's my strategy. That's great, great information. 
You know, I um, as I'm listening, you know, it, you're extremely humble. I see that you've gotten a lot from people. I oftentimes like to ask successful people, what have they poured into other people? Mm-hmm. And the question I want to ask you is when you see students that are on a trajectory to be great or maybe not be as great, what characteristics do you see in them that make you recommend a career in academia or even a career in, or maybe getting their PhD? What, what different things do you see that make you pull them to the side and say, hey, you may want to look into this? You know what? I just had that conversation you know, um, the day before I left for my vacation with a student who was thinking about going to law school. And the young lady said, well, I love political science. I love to get in front of people and speak. I love fighting for people. And I said, so have you thought about a career in law? And she says, I've never thought about that. I just wanted to be, uh, I think she said she wanted to be like a uh, probation officer or something. I said, oh, okay. Well, I mean, that's that's a noble path if you so choose, but think about how you could influence policy if you consider a degree in law. So oftentimes right. it is a, it's, it's, it's a vibe I get, man. It's, it could be one word that a student says that triggers my thinking about something. And right. it comes from listening. I think that students will tell you exactly what they want to do if you just listen. See, oftentimes professors, administrators, we think that we always know what's best for our students. But sometimes you got to just listen. But there's a right. balance, though. I can't go to my physician and, and tell him what milligram to prescribe me. Right. I'm not a physician. Right. He knows much more about my body medically than I do. He knows how it's supposed to function. Mm-hmm. As administrators, professors, we know elements of the academy that the students just are not going to understand as freshmen. Right. There is a, a unique marriage there in which I listen and then I advise based on what I'm hearing from the students. So the key is, though, to ensure that you are asking them if they want to be successful or do they want to be significant? And I take this from my own children. I I don't ask them what do they want to be when they grow up. I ask them what problem do they want to solve? Great question. So same thing with my students. What problem do you want to solve? And when they come back, they think about it and they come back and tell me what they wish to solve, then I give them a prescription just like the physician gives me on how to get there based on my perception, my experiences and my own understanding. But I also tell them that I'm not here to teach you what to think, but how to think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how we do that. That's that's deep. And that's, that's great insight. I'm going to, I'm going to take that and implement that in my own life. (laughs) Okay. We'll have it. And I'm going to give you credit for it. Right. You um you seem to understand content on social. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I got hip to you because of the tweet that went quote unquote viral. You know, I hate to use the, <laughs> the I, I hate to use the word viral because as you've seen how virality goes, <laughs> sure. you, have a, you have a bump in your in your phone just starts to go off. You know, for a, a day, two days, even three days, but then it you know pretty much gets back to gets back to regular. And the tweet talked about how the student came into your office and you know had a GA. GED and you told him how you went to you went from GED to PhD. Uh-huh. Um, what is your content strategy as far as putting things out there, letting the world know who you are? Because you see, the world needs to know who you are, and um, I think that you do a really good job content wise. So I wanted to know, kind of get a feel for what your strategy is on. How you put it out? Do you skip? Do you schedule content? Do you go on just the feeling? And what are your thoughts on social media and how they affect uh, bringing top of the funnel awareness to intellectuals like yourself? You know, as as you ask me that question, I'm looking out into my my office suite, and I'm looking at the student who mo- was the motivation behind that tweet, who is now my work study student. That's pretty meta, right there, <laughs> and. I can be in my office and a student can say something that triggers something in me and, mm-hmm. and I share it because they've inspired me to think about a better way to do business at an HBCU at an organization period. So believe it or not, the strategy is I don't really have a strategy. Um, the only thing I'm careful about doing is, you know, proofing or, you know, for grammar and, and, and subject and verb agreement and all that. But it is oftentimes just me having a conversation with my students and I and I share it for the world because I w- the whole point is for, for the world to see the beauty at what happens in the walls of an HBCU. Mm-hmm. Because I realized from this seat that Life happens to students. Now, I come from the academic side, so I never saw this side until I came into student affairs. So oftentimes, our students are dealing with, you know, my mother has stage four cancer. My dad is dying of brain cancer, but I'm still trying to pay for schools because this is what they want me to do is to graduate. Minutes ago, a student brought me uh, some Gucci cologne because I helped her at a time when her mother was going through, you know, some kind of breast surgery because she, you know, she's battling cancer and it can just be anything that inspires me to share my insight with, with the social media world. And I do think I need to refine it a little bit more because I want to share more with people, not necessarily about Rolanda's rights to person, but the HBCU and all of the beauty that it has in preparing students to be great. Um, so I may not be able to give you a solid response to that, but it's, it's, it's candid. I really don't. It's, it's, it's very random. It is very random. I, I think the, I, I think that is a solid response. The, the truth and exactly what you do and how meta uh, you do things. I think that's what resonates. I think when things can be uh, overthought or over practiced or I think sometimes they come off as that. But when things the truth is always going to resonate and and karma is practical. So I think that is a good strategy just to share when 
when when things move you. So I, you know, again, being a historian, I'm reminded of a of a jab that Martin Luther King often used that he borrowed borrowed from one of his professors, and he said that we should be mindful of paralysis by analysis. Yes. You analyze so much, I mean, you're paralyzed and cannot move forward or upward. Yes. Yes. So, yes. So, yeah, I mean, I try not to overthink things and, um, and and just share what's on my heart. And my heart leads me, you know, in more ways often than, you know, more than what my mind should do. But I'm I love people. I, I love God's people, man. And whatever I can do to help them get to where they want to get to is what I'm going to do every chance I get. That's awesome. Now, tell us exactly uh, where you are professionally. Sometimes, you know, I was reading a little on you, just doing a little research before our talk, and sometimes I can get, I got a little um, (laughs) mixed up on exactly where you are professionally. So tell us exactly where you are right now. Sure. So I am at Alabama State University. And you are uh i am the assistant vice president for student affairs and enrollment management okay. so okay. uh first and second year experiences academic advising records and registration uh housing and residence life uh student conduct um and the office of retention they fall into my office uh for supervision so that's what i do on a day-to-day basis but i also teach a history course every semester too Okay. Okay. And what are you working on? So that's what you're doing. What are you working on um, right now? As far as I know you have the website dapperdean.com and, you know, and, and I I know you, you have a lot of attention right now. So I just want to get a feel for what you're working on and, and what you're trying to um, accomplish inside or outside of Alabama state within the next 12 to 18 months. So yeah, no problem. So so the passport, the purpose. Um, many of our students don't know what a passport is. Okay. And we're preparing them so every time they satisfy a requirement, they get a stamp at a port on campus. And at the end of the first year, they get an incentive that you know encourages them to stay with us because a lot of schools lose most of their students after the first year, and so. What we're doing is using that initiative to increase our retention, progression, and graduation rates. But personally, the Dapper Dean, I mean, it's taken off. Um, I've been invited to speak all around the country to share my PhD to GED story and how all of us have a, a GED to PhD story, whether it's in the academy or in other ways. We went from something to something else. And to show people that there is a path to that. There's an example for that. Um, I'm able to share that. And it is so fulfilling for me. So as you can imagine, I stay extremely busy and I like being busy because again, I sleep when I'm dead, man. I want to use every waking moment I can to share with people how they too can earn the PhD in their own lives, Even if it's not an academic credential or personal credential, you know, That's excellent. Dr. Rice, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. You've imparted a lot, a lot of wisdom. I don't want to disrespect anyone that's ever been on the podcast, but uh, I think everyone is going to love this one. Um, You know, I, you know, it it just, you're humbling. 
Uh, you're humble. Excuse me. It's humbling to talk to someone that is so humble, uh, that is so knowledgeable as well. Uh, but before we end, I always give our guests a chance to ask the question of the day. The question can be about HBCUs. It can be about family life. It can be about history. It can be about uh, what happened in the NBA over the last 24 hours. It can be, <laughs> it can be about anything. I want to give you the opportunity to ask our audience a question that you may want to get some insight on or something that you may want to have a little fun with. Well, I'll, I'll raise the question to the HBCU grad world. Um, what problem do you want to solve? And Great question. That problem can be, you know, whether it's a social, political, economic, medical, legal, what problem do you want to solve? And I will be eager to hear or see what the responses are to that because it gives me insight in how I can impart additional things to my students. Right. Again, thank you, Dr. Rice. We are always here. We're in full support of you. Uh, we love the HBC community. We, it's unbelievable that through pictures, words, and videos, we've had a chance to uh, hook up with people like you. Um, a tweet is what brought you on our radar wow. and, and now people have gotten a chance to dive a little bit deeper into your story. Uh, hear some of your insights. You dropped a lot of gems. Uh, we really appreciate it. And if you ever need us, we'll always be here for you. Hey, you're very kind, my brother. And likewise, if I can be of any assistance to you and all of the wonderful work that you are doing to share with the world, um, I'm right here, man, and would love to continue to collaborate and cooperate with you and everything that you're doing because you have something special, man. So so keep it going. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Rice. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. We truly appreciate your attention. If you haven't done so yet, please share the podcast. Uh, please rate us on iTunes. Uh, if it's worthy of a one star, give us a one star. Uh, if it's worthy of a five star, please give us a five star. That will really help. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast. Have a good day.